Hey, it's Andrew. Just quickly before we start this episode, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, the Secure Ventures Podcast. The host, Kyle McNulty, interviews cybersecurity founders about what they are building. I enjoy it because Kyle focuses on their technology, what it solves, why they build it, where it fits in the market. Also, listeners can understand the why of these startups. In some ways, it's a great compliment to my own podcast, where I focus on the go-to-market side, not on the technology side. He's had some great guests on recently, for example, the CEO of Reality Defender, when they talked about the ins and outs of deep fate detection. Uh, he's had the co-founder and CEO of Ghost Security, and also the co-founder of Radical, Chris Peterson, who was incidentally a founder of Logarithm, where they talk about the role of AI in the SOC. This is not a paid promotion. I just simply enjoy what Kyle is doing with his interviews and get a lot out of them. Check it out. It's the Secure Ventures podcast. Now on with this episode. You're innovating in a legacy market, bringing new things to the market to make a difference. How do you do that? And what role does the channel play? Find out in this episode with Michelle Tori Tennyson, Six Clicks CRO. Welcome to the Sales Bluebird podcast, which exists because at cybersecurity startups, it is hard to get to a repeatable sales process and then scale the sales team. Sales Bluebird gives you tips, tricks, experiences, examples, ideas, and inspiration from people who know a thing or 10 about building great cybersecurity companies. I am your host, Andrew Monahan. Our guest today is Michelle Tori Tennyson, Chief Revenue Officer at Six Clicks. Michelle, welcome to Sales Bluebird. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our discussion. It's uh, You've got an interesting background. You spent a lot of time in the traditional security channel, and I'm keen to understand the learnings from that and how you applied it working now as the CRO at a, at a vendor. So we're going to get to some interesting conversations around that. But, Michelle, before we get there, let's get to know you a little bit better than we do right now. I have a list of questions here, and I'm going to ask you to pick out three numbers randomly between 1 and 35, and I'll read out the questions that they correspond to. Okay. I'll start with my age, 35. Just kidding. <laughs> 35. I love it. One more aisle. Yeah, 13 and uh, 28. Okay. So let's so we'll start with 35. Window or aisle? Window, for sure. A little bit claustrophobic. like to look out. Like to look at yes, there is something I find when you're flying on long journeys. A lot of good thinking can happen staring at the window of a plane, but also I'm, I I don't know what it is about me or what it says, but I'm kind of fascinated what you're flying over at times, right? You know, one of the things I I always think about flying from well either east to west or west to east across the western half of the U.S. And you think there's so much barren land, like two hours of it on a plane, that somehow the settlers kept going and they thought no no it's gonna be better we're gonna keep going we're gonna keep going and I often, often think about their mindset of going through that well there's it's so mountainous and, and desert too some of it's uninhabitable really um, but uh yeah I, I am also curious about why people keep their their windows you know the shutter closed on their window because it's you're right there's so much beauty out there that you don't get to see otherwise yeah you're right for sure all right next one you said with 13 right so they say that home is where the heart is. Where is home for you? Oh, that's a good question. I currently reside in Arizona with my second husband. 
came here uh, by virtue of that second marriage, and both of my older kids followed me. Uh, so we're a blended family. We've got uh, four kids between us. We've officially hit a empty nest status after 30 years, if you can believe that. I've had 30 years of kids in my house. <laughs> Not quite sure what to do with myself now, but I'm enjoying it, nevertheless. So right now, home is in Arizona. I came here to do what I call a tour of duty with my husband and helped him raise his kids. Uh, he was and always has been the primary parent for his children. So um, I was, you know, very, very well plugged in and we've done a lovely job blending our families and I'm quite proud of what we've put together. But I, I told him I'm not going to die in the desert. So <laughs> I think I think going back to California is in the cards for us. Uh, and he jokes, you know, we're going to be the only U-Haul going that direction because it seems like everyone's coming this way. But uh, yeah, we still own a home in the Bay Area. And that's ultimately where we'll land. I lived in the Bay Area for five years. Beautiful part of the world. Um, a lot of good things going on there, despite what people say, right? Yeah. Yeah, lots of natural beauty if you can get out. You know, I love my kids, but I'm very jealous of your empty nest status, I've got to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the house feels a lot bigger now. You know, when the kids are here, we're like, oh, we need more house, and now we need less house because it's a lot to maintain. But, yeah, no, we're really enjoying it. And what was your final number? Uh, 28. One great airport that you've been to. Well, how do you measure greatness when it comes to airports? I think ease of maneuvering is one, but people watching quality is, is another. And I think it's probably a toss up between Heathrow and Amsterdam in terms of just really good people watching, <laughs> you know, the melting pot venues. Yeah, I, I have a love-hate relationship with Heathrow. Shipwell is, is fun. Shipwell, uh, I've been through there quite a few times. One of my abiding memories is they have those food spas where you put your feet into the thing and have the little tadpoles nibble away at your feet. I miss that, Andrew. <laughs> I, I remember clearly it was a huge area and they had these tanks and you put your feet in. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. This was quite a few years ago. Maybe they've taken it out by now. But uh, And these people would all line up with their feet in these these tubs and there's all these little tadpoles nipped away at their feet. Oh, man, if I had participated in that, that might have tipped the scale for me. They would have been winner. But, yeah, the Dutch are they're quite progressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How did you first make money as a kid, Michelle? Oh, well, you know, traditional young girl kind of things. I babysat. Um, my first actual job with a paycheck was Burger King. And I was schlepping burgers for $3.10 an hour, if you can believe that. <laughs> did they give you a pay raise to maybe 315 or 320 you know i actually found another job and the day that i gave my notice my boss tried to give me a pay raise to 315 and i'm like mm, oh no I'm sorry <laughs> funny funny thing so uh when i left high school before going to college i spent one month working in mcdonald's in edinburgh in scotland it just opened up I don't actually remember how much I was paid, but it was it was almost that low. It was maybe three pounds fifty or something like that. And uh, the day before I was leaving to go to university, they didn't, they didn't know I was going. They gave me like a five pence pay raise, and uh, the lady that gave it to me was really mad when I when I quit the next day. Like somehow, you know, it was uh, a big deal that I I taken the five pence pay raise and then then left. But, uh, you know, it's an amazing amount of people that have some sort of experience of working in the fast food industry and then go on from there. 
Yeah, I think most young kids should have some sort of customer service experience dealing with the public. It's such a critical life skill in general that food service is a good way to get that experience. So then beyond Burger King, what was your first real job that was part of a career? I would say I got into sales through uh, working for a semiconductor firm in Silicon Valley and uh, took a job as an inside sales rep. Didn't know anything about selling, didn't know anything about components. And I learned all of the vernacular of the semiconductor industry and just sort of found my way, you know, kept climbing the ladder from there. So, yeah, I would say that was probably my first entree into an actual sales role that propelled me. And then if we fast forward through your career, I'm looking at uh, you spent a bit of time, six years at Checkpoint, Siegeworks, a long time, seven years at Fishnet. Uh, and then you were a sales leader at Allgrass. And now, uh, fast forward to just over a year ago, you became the chief revenue officer at Six Clicks. Uh, going back to your first time, first few weeks or months at Six Clicks, do you remember when you were there and the first time that you, you and the team booked an order when you just joined? Absolutely. So the first deal that, that we closed here in the U.S., so I have global responsibility for the revenue number, and, and we have a team in Australia, U.K., and the U.S., but the first deal that we closed in the U.S. after I joined was probably the easiest technology sale I ever made, and that was into an advisor partner. So our product is pretty well suited to the advisory space, a managed service provider consulting uh, service delivery organization, and uh, the platform is really elegant for their use case and quite enabling for what they're trying to accomplish. So it was fun. So if you were to meet with the 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 buyer at the advisory partner you, you mentioned now, how would you answer their question to you, which would be, what does Six Clicks do? Well, we have two primary audiences or target markets. As I mentioned, the advisory market is one area and that de- that kind of hails back to the heritage of the company. Two of our three founders came out of KPMG. Our CEO himself was the chief digital officer for KPMG. So it was his responsibility to digitize service delivery for that organization. And so taking the, the, the experience that he and our other KPMG founder had, they basically developed a product that would be really well suited for that market. That was the original intent. When I joined mid last year, I saw a lot of that functionality that they had developed solely targeted for that market as being resonant in the commercial enterprise market as well. So I came in and actually had quite a bit of influence on the product packaging and pricing model and then marketing of that product line. And we're now finding ourselves further upstream in the enterprise. So the primary differentiators for Six Clicks as a contemporary next generation GRC are uh, multi-tenancy, which is uh, very appealing to advisory firms, uh, managed service providers, but also very complex organizations that have, you know, maybe multi-levels of hierarchy or siloed divisions or perhaps uh, subsidiaries of a holding company. So it's a model that lends itself really nicely, even in the uh, enterprise commercial space. That's one differentiator for us in what is quite a crowded GRC space, a lot of players in that market. The second differentiator for us is we've got a really rich, robust content library. And when I speak of content, I'm talking about standards, laws, regulations, 
assessment templates, reporting templates, risk libraries, policy, baseline policies, playbooks, projects, the list goes on. And we've got just volumes of content that we maintain, keep current, and uh, provide at no additional cost to our clients. And then the last differentiator, Andrew, is our AI engine. And we call our AI engine Haley for the spelling of her name, H-A-I-L-E-Y. But Haley is essentially uh, uses natural language processing, and it'll uh, she can allow a practitioner to take advantage of her ability to map privacy and cyber regulations to each other and identify gaps, as well as policy or control sets to standards as well. So um, with us being standard agnostic, she can essentially digest any standard, any framework, any regulation that's either cyber or privacy and create those mappings in a matter of minutes where a practitioner might spend hours and hours and hours doing that repeatedly over across multiple regulations. The benefit of that work and that efficiency is at the end of the results gives you a kind of a roadmap for where the gaps are and how you prioritize where to spend your time. So let's say an organization is PCI compliant and they know in six months that they want to become ISO 27001 compliant. They can take all of the work that they've done on their PCI assessment and that project, including all of the findings, the evidence, the attestations and um, responses, and then they can, can apply that to the ISO certification initiative and identify where there's gaps and what they need to do to prioritize and remediate those gaps. So it's a huge time saver. And is the AI the big innovation that Six Clicks is bringing to the market, or is there something else under the covers that really delivers the, the uniqueness and the value? I'd say the AI is a big, huge component and also the multi-tenancy, that multi-entity capability. We're talking through large university systems who have you know multiple schools, School of Medicine, School of Engineering. The use cases are endless for that. You mentioned, first of all, the advisory partners, right? So if I'm if I'm a partner at a mid-range firm, let's say, what am I doing right now if I don't have a tool that has multi-tenancy as part of it? That's a great question. So the legacy GRC providers in the market say that they can address that multi-hierarchy and complex org structure through LDAP, which is basically, you know, access control. And... You can offer that in a smaller organization with a, not a very complex business model, but when you start to get into really large, complex organizations, it becomes messy and hard to maintain. Beyond that, though, they're still all living in the same instance of a GRC environment, right? So there still could be risk of cross-pollination of risks and so forth. And in a model that the model of the holding company and subsidiary, as I mentioned, this is a real-world example. So we have a client that has 165 subsidiaries. They buy, on average, about 16 to 20 a year. That's all they do is buy companies. They Each organization remains its own wholly-owned organization with its own CISO and its own risk register. They don't want their peer organizations to know what their risks are, right? And so they want to maintain some, some guardrails around that, but they also have a need to roll that risk data up to the corporate office and to the board. So there is a central location that needs visibility and they need some assessment response with regularity and they need reporting of incidents and risks, but they also want to give those organizations the autonomy to manage their own GRC and risk program. And that's what SixClicks does. 
it seems like to me there's a certain irony in the GRC world that uh, companies are, are trying to control that just through access controls and not have a multi-tenancy. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. And frankly, you're right. It's counterintuitive when it comes to cybersecurity. And when you go to your enterprise buyers, who's buying this? Who, which is the, the persona you're going after? Primarily, we're speaking to the, the personas in the InfoSec side of the uh, business, so those that roll up to the CISO. On occasion, we talk to folks in under the CFO or CROs, Chief Risk Officer, which is an emerging role now in companies. But I'd say 90% of the time, we're sitting in the InfoSec side of the uh, business. What are they screaming out for? You know, when they hear what you do, which is the thing they're like, oh, my goodness, thank goodness. You know, I'm excited about that. Tell me more about that thing right there. Really, it's the three primary pillars that I mentioned, that multi-tenancy, the, uh, the content library. So not only are we standard agnostic and can bring in volumes of content, we can also bring in bespoke content. So they may have, for instance, a derivative of ISO that they're using to assess internally or assess themselves against. And it's a unique custom framework that they've built themselves or perhaps a, hi a hybrid of ISO and NIST and HIPAA, for instance. We can bring all of that in. There's no limit to what we can accommodate. So it's very easy to use, easy to implement. The organization that I mentioned that has 165 companies, while the sales cycle itself was long because they did a pretty extensive POC of our product and they came off of a, pro a previous GRC platform that had promised multi-tenancy for three years and never delivered. So we had a long sales cycle, but the implementation time was literally six weeks from the time we provisioned them to in production and, and assessing their 100, at the time it was 145 organizations. Six weeks, that seems pretty short given the complexities of, of implementing GRC tools. The traditional tools, the legacy tools on the market, the ones that have actually established the market, uh, I won't name any names, but I think that most people listening to this, if they are familiar with GRC, they're going to know the usual players. Those companies are development platforms, and they have a lot of bells and whistles, and they can pretty much do everything you want them to do, include slice your bread, but very expensive, very uh, professional service intensive. They're, they require coding and customization. And if you make that investment, and you, you know, have the team to support it, that's all good and well. But at the end of that, you end up locked into that version and that code train. So you're never able to take advantage of upgrades from that vendor themselves. So it's a, it's a very archaic model, and customers are looking for alternatives, very much so. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that uh, this is one area of, of many where the legacy players started off in the early 2000s when, you know, frame, you know, building a framework and infrastructure on these things and doing a whole bunch of consulting to set it up was kind of how things worked at the time, right? And it's the DNA of some of these tools. And you contrast that to the thought these days, which is, well, that's that's not the way to do it. We need to make things more consumable. We need to get the time to value all the way down. It seems like there's definitely some sub-markets in, in our world that are ripe for that, and this might be one of them. And I think that the market itself has evolved. You know, what used to be the target GRC companies were obviously the more heavily regulated market sectors, but also companies that have, have really large IT staff and a lot of money to spend on something like this, which at the time... In the early days, it was considered a nice to have. Now, organizations we're finding who don't even have regulatory obligations, but they know that they need to adhere to something. So they're self-imposing 
frameworks and they're trying to adhere to either NIST or ISO or, or what have you, they see it more as a business enabler and they understand that they have a requirement to roll up their risk story and their risk posture to their board and their shareholders or their employees or their vendors or their customers. Like everybody needs to know that you have a solid risk posture. And so it's no longer a nice to have. I think the, the mindset has changed and we've seen budgets follow that. And it's probably the driver um, to get beyond spreadsheets. It seems to me, especially in this world, uh, GRC world, that there's an addiction to spreadsheets to fill in spreadsheets and pass run spreadsheets and then amalgamate spreadsheets and pay people to deal with spreadsheets, right? It seems like there's a need to modernize how this all happens. Yeah, it's amazing how much still gets done on Excel. But uh, even large companies, large, sophisticated organizations that are high revenue companies, surprisingly, are still very much on the spreadsheet. You know, it's what people know. And everybody knows how to run a spreadsheet. Not everybody knows how to take on a new piece of software and, and gain user adoption across the organization. Because truly, that's, that is one of the biggest challenges. And I would say friction points with adoption of a GRC solution. And that's one of the reasons why we design with our UX and UI in, in mind, because that user experience matters. And of course, for us, it matters because it keeps us sticky in the account if, if they're gaining user adoption. But it also helps accelerate their program. As you say, GRC, there's a lot of companies now in this space. You've got the legacy players you were talking about. I'm, I can think more off the top of my head, but there's a few other ones now. How do you think about how to stand out, how to rise above the noise, get your more than your fair share of attention out there without just screaming all the time? <laughs> how do you help the sales team with that? You know, buyers are so much more sophisticated now, Andrew. I think that the days of traditional selling are gone, you know, where you're cold calling or putting billboards on the side of the road or in the airports. I mean, that's still, people still spend on those types of advertising mediums. But I think really customers are self-educating and they're looking for product reviews, I think is a really valuable way for technology vendors to get their message out because there's a lot of credibility in those. A potential prospect is going to look to see what kind of rating you have and what customers are saying about usability ease of implementation, you know, feature delivery, things like that. So I think that that's probably one of the primary areas that any organization that's emerging and looking to gain user adoption should focus on. So how do they do that, though? I, I often think it's it's a good intention, right, that they should be able to go and look places and talk to their friends and their, their colleagues and get some good information. But when that when you rely on that, there's not much control you can have, it seems to me anyway, from the, the vendor side to really make sure the right things are hitting the right place. It's very much a dependency. You're fairly codependent on your customers from that perspective. You know, it's a lot of it is just, you know, pick and shovel, <laughs> you know, making sure your customers are happy and continuously asking them, please write a review for us. Uh, referral selling is really important. If you've been selling in any technology and, and get a referral deal versus a cold lead off the street that come, you know, someone inbound that hits your website and asks for a meeting, the sales cycle related to the referral is going to be so much shorter than the cold inbound lead. And what role do the advisor partners play in that? Are they referring and they advising to buy? They're very important to us because they are advising their customers 
And those advisors aren't only offering managed services, but they're offering GRC complementary services, things like audit readiness, baseline policy development, information security program development, risk management, framework implementation. VCSO services often, you know, our partners are offering fractional or VCSO services, and they're squarely in a position to influence a user's exposure to, you know, different technologies. Well, one of the things I said, Michelle, along the way was that you spent a long time at, at Fishnet, you know, one of the premier security, traditional security channel partners in North America. And I'm wondering, as you think back to those days and thinking about what you're doing right now, uh, the dif- differences between trying to be a successful channel partner versus being a successful vendor and what that means for how you think about the sales team. I'm actually feel very lucky and blessed that I've had exposure to both sides of the table. Um, I've been on both on the manufacturing side, hailing back to my days at Checkpoint where, you know, I was selling firewalls in the early days of firewalls before they were even a thing. And at Checkpoint as a 100% channel company taught me a lot about selling through the channel. And then when I moved into the channel, I understood a day in the life and what it's like when you have to scrap for margin all day long, every day. And, you know, try to be remain agnostic to your customers so that you can bring value. I think having the experience of both of those worlds has well prepared me for this role. So when I joined Six Clicks, you know, the company, as I mentioned, is very well aware and, and, and very knowledgeable about the advisory space, not so much about the traditional reseller channels. So there was some education involved. And I brought in very early, I brought in a channel manager here in the States. We developed a channel program and we put all of the foundational pieces in place to really embrace the channel. And I've actually even furthered that this fiscal year with our compensation model. So all of our sales reps now have an uplift in their compensation if they run deals through the channel. So for us, that's a way to put our money where our mouth is. And it's a little bit more expensive to run a deal that way because you're paying both the partner and the sales rep more commission. But it's the right thing to do when you're clamoring for mindshare among the channel. And, you know, they they don't get leads like a manufacturer gets leads. So bringing a channel partner a deal is like gold for them. And it, it puts you in a nice position to ask for reciprocity as well. And when you think about how to make SysClicks attractive to your partners, given that you're relatively early stage and, you know, just getting going, what, what can you bring as a, as a newer vendor to a partner for them to want to pay attention and want to do business? It's not like they're short of vendors to work with, right? So what, what do you do to make yourself attractive to them? Well, I think emerging vendors tend to have high, uh, richer margins. And so that always gets attention. A lot of the legacy companies in the cyberspace anyway, as I'm told, those vendors' margins diminish over time. Um, I'm not sure why that is. Perhaps it relates back to their market share and they feel that they can do it, right? That they don't necessarily have to pay as much to the channel partner. But rich margins get mind share. And, you know, motivating your salespeople the right way gets mind share. Leads get mind share. But none of that matters if you have a technology that doesn't get mind share. Right. If if you're appealing to their customer base with a technology that doesn't really that kind of falls flat, it none of that's going to matter. 
So I think you have to have a compelling technology story to begin with and then layer on all of those channel uh, benefits. Well, let me say something and you tell me if you agree or disagree is I feel like uh, for the run of the mill channel sales rep, right? <laughs> I know there's no such thing, but let's say, you know, a rep at adoptive, let's say, you know, they're, what they're trying to do is build their business, build their franchise with a core set of customers. And it really matters to them what they take to their customers. And then, you know, there's, they might only have, I don't know, 10 or 15, 20, 25 customers, but they've got 2000 vendors to choose from. They want to make sure that they're successful with these customers. And therefore, there's a lot, of, a lot that has to go into that. Like you said, the technology, they don't want to take a dud. They don't want to go to their customer and try and get the meeting and then show up and this, this technology is you know, a bunch of crap or the people are not very professional, whatever it might be. But it does mean that in my mind, and this is really my question, how good are they at helping you make a market, right? If they're a little bit reluctant, how how many of them and in what way do they do it where they, they want to take innovative new things to prospects? Yeah, that's a great question, Andrew. How good are they at helping you make a market? That's a really great question. You can't rely on every sales rep to be able to uh, see the forest from, you know, see through the forest because of the trees, right? We had an experience this week, in fact, if you're familiar with GuidePoint Security, they're one of the largest national resellers of cybersecurity in the U.S. I happen to know the, the CEO. I, was, I worked for him at Fishnet. So I have, I have a very high-level executive relationship already. He's the best boss, one, I'll say one of the best bosses I've ever had. But in spite of that, and in spite of the fact that I remain in touch with him, trying to work that relationship from the top down isn't always effective because they do have 500 vendors on their line card. And unless there's, unless there's activity happening in the field, I mean, the, the magic really happens at the field between the reps. If we're bringing you into an opportunity and you see that there's a possibility to win in that opportunity because of the, a compelling technology and a, and a, a real exploited pain point, that gets attention. We had a situation this week where one of the sales reps in the Northeast found their way to us, and she has a, a very specific WISC and GRC background. So she speaks the language. She's very GRC fluent. Um, so she was in a, a really good position to be able to evaluate us, our product, and kind of stack that up against the needs of her healthcare customer that she was considering us for. So we met with her, we did a demo, we spent a fair amount of time talking about our two organizations, what our go-to-market strategy was, how they like to work with vendors, all of their requirements and so forth. And frankly, I spent a fair amount of time putting her mind at ease during that session that, you know, we'll go in and lockstep, we'll make her look good. And, you know, we'll strategize beforehand, uh, we'll make sure that we can meet the customer's requirements and we'll be sure to reflect really well on her. So we got we were able to secure the meeting with the healthcare provider, and we're actually quite excited about it because she's now also advanced us. She was so excited about our technology, she's advanced us to the GRC practice manager within GuidePoint. And it would have taken me six months to get that meeting otherwise. So I think that's such a good point to make, though, Michelle, because you know I, I work with early stage cybersecurity vendors, and for those that don't have the experience. I think there's a belief that if we start working with a channel partner, we've got a good relationship with the channel partner and things are going to be good. I don't know what the right percentage is, but 
maybe that's 25% of it. <laughs> and the real work to be done is on the rep to rep level, right? It's, it's out there in the field, building trust, building a common way of working, you know, figuring out, you know, almost rep by rep, target by target, how you're going to go to market together. Cause that's where the rubber meets the road when you're trying to build that relationship. And I think that uh, if, if someone's newer to this concept, what they should probably know is that, you know, there's a long, long road of uh, relationships that have kind of fallen by the wayside by bad behavior on either side, frankly, right. You know, partners getting cut out of deals and then uh, uh, vendors being cut out of deals and all sorts of things going on. And that's why it's so important at that level to have that level of trust, like you were building with, with the guide point rep. Absolutely. Trust is critical. And all it takes is one situation and you will be blacklisted forever. So <laughs> it's a, it's a fine line. You really do have to understand the rules of the road and and stick by them. And so this is why I say I think my background lends itself really nicely because I've been on that side of the table. I've been the one that's been burned by vendors. So I've lived I've lived the same life that they live day in and day out. And I appreciate where they're coming from. So it allows me to be able to coach my reps accordingly. So. Yeah, and the good thing is that uh, you know the the bar is not that high, right? Good, good integrity, good ethics, professionalism, looking after your partner, things like that will set you apart from from a lot of the relationships out there. So so that's good, but it can be so powerful when it's done right. And it's just maybe not quite as easy as some people might think it is. I guess is my point. Tell me about your sales team right now. Well, as I mentioned early in the call, I've got uh, three teams primarily. Australia, UK, and US, and we have a handful of sales reps in each region. We're splitting Australia and the US uh, with a territory boundary, and then I've got a few channel folks in each region as well. Beyond that, we have pre-sales technical support that serve also in a hybrid post-sales role, so our support team tries to stay consistent with the customer from start to finish through the whole life cycle which as I mentioned, can be quite short from sales, pre-sales to implementation because it is so easy to get the product stood up. But that's essentially it. You know, we've got a couple of direct sales reps in each region and then a handful of channel people to support those folks and, and be involved in partner recruitment, deal registration approval, partner enablement, sales training, et cetera. And when you were bringing the, the team on after you joined, were you looking for GRC specialists or were you looking for sales athletes? There are a couple of characteristics that I look for in really good A player salespeople. One of those characteristics is um, motivation, which is um, will to work. So I look to understand what motivates them. And that to me is an indication of how hard they're going to work. Are they going to roll up their sleeves and do the hard stuff? And I look for athletic ability, frankly, you know, are they, have they been athletes in the past? Have they been accomplished athletes? Because to me, that shows a competitive nature and a willingness to perform and achieve at high levels. Probably one of the, the most important things, Andrew, is coachability. And, and I say that because they don't necessarily have to have GRC background. It does help if they're already ahead of the curve on the technology, but I don't look just solely at that. How do you know if someone's coachable? So I actually, over the years, have I've tried so many ways <laughs> to ask questions of sales candidates. It's a it's a really difficult part of the sales management job, as you would imagine. 
I've actually adopted the use of an assessment tool. So during the interview process, every one of my candidates that gets shortlisted goes through an assessment, an online assessment. It's like 45-minute Q&A. It includes a variety of questions. Some questions relate to things like how they buy as individuals, you know, a large purchase, whether it's a home or a car or a piece of land or vacation property, whatever. And the reason for that is it helps get into their psyche about how they make buying decisions, because that is a really strong indicator of how they'll sell as well. So do they take a long time to make a buy decision, in which case they'll probably allow customers to take a long time to make a decision, right? Are they comfortable talking about money? So the assessment ranges from those types of questions all the way to, you know, their closing style and so on and so forth. So uh, I've found great value in being able to use that assessment tool. The company that manufactures it actually recommends not to share the results with the candidates. But if I hire the candidate, I ultimately do end up sharing the results because I think the findings are so valuable. And I think that it's a benefit for people to see where they scored high and where they didn't score high. If you were to put a percentage on how much weight you give the results of the assessment in the in the um, hiring process, what what percentage would you guess is? Actually, quite a high percent. I would weight it probably 75%. And I'll tell you why, because I've actually tested and gone against the recommendation of the assessment and have found that I shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> And then I have, you know, taken the the assessment and really put a lot of emphasis and a lot of weight behind it and have had great results. So if you had asked me that question two years ago, I probably wouldn't have put the same weighting on that. But my experience has been it it's a really well thought out assessment and they it's it's not a personality test per se, but it gets into the psyche of the individual in a way that they can't game they can't game the assessment. So there's some artificial intelligence that goes on in the background to help understand if the users pause the the test for a long time and they're looking up answers on Google or, you know, there's certain things that they can do to determine whether or not the results of the test are at, there's an accuracy score. So I'm fascinated to know who, who does this test, who produces it. So the company that I use is called Objective Business Management, or excuse me, Objective Management Group, OMG. They're not the only one. So there are quite a few tools on the market that do something similar. I looked at a few different ones. You know, I'm fascinated that you you put such a large weighting on that. You know, I, what I've tended to see in the past, frankly, is people say, yeah, we do assessments and, you know, it's one of the data points. And really, I think what they're saying is that it's probably more like a 20% weighting or, you know, one of the things that they, they're looking for. And I, I wonder if they're doing it for a bit of CYA or whether it's truly, you know, something they're looking for great insights from. But I'm I'm kind of intrigued and, and really fascinated that you've you signed such a high weighting to it. Well, what we're doing, Andrew, and, and the expectations of my board and our investors are such that I can't get it wrong. <laughs> so I can't rely on my gut. And I've uh, made hires on my gut in the past that haven't necessarily panned out. Sales is one of the diff- most difficult roles to hire for. And I often have resurrected those results on candidates and who are now employees as you get to know somebody and you get them through a couple of quarters and you see their sales patterns, then you compare that with the original assessment and go, aha, okay, now I can see why they scored that way here. Right. And it's, I think it's a a great coaching tool. 
That's what I was going to say. I love the fact that you follow through with it and use it as something to help, you know, the relationship and help people succeed. I think too too few times did we do that effectively as a as a group, salespeople and sales leaders, right? But that's where it really fall through and make it really work for you. So that that's awesome. And would you continue for you, do you continue using it for quite a while after the person's joined uh, and use that as the basis, or at some point is it say, okay, now we know each other really well. It's not quite not got quite so much use from a coaching standpoint. Yeah, I think within the first six months to year, depending on what your roadmap is for your reps, it would be use, a useful tool. This organization actually has a, a solution that will carry through the life cycle as well. So you can use it for folks that are already in the organization that maybe you didn't hire who you know uh, are in a sales capacity. And you can also use it as an ongoing coaching tool for like regular assessments. I didn't subscribe to that model, but it's available. Well, I think one of the points you made, which I, I really thinking about as you were talking there, you know, in startup selling, when you got a small team, you can't afford to miss with 50% of your hires, <laughs> right? It's such a, such a huge effect on the company, never mind the sales team. And, you know, finding a way to really get more certainty than gut feel seems to me to be a, a pretty sound approach. And I'm, I'm really encouraged that you've got such a high I don't know what the right word is, trust, I guess, in, in the assessment itself. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Well, I, I can't say I've always gotten it right, but, you know, you, you learn to pivot quickly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, I don't know. I've never run an engineering team or, or a, you know, a customer support team, but I know in sales for sure, there's, there's no such thing as getting it right every single time. Even people that you know were successful as you worked together in the past might not be successful or fit in quite right at the, the new company. But whatever you can to increase the odds in your favor in, in a way, you know, with assessment like that seems like a pretty, pretty natural and logical thing to go do. I don't know why more people don't do it. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, there is a cost associated with it. So that could be a factor. But, but I found even with senior reps, Every selling environment is going to be somewhat unique, regardless of how much experience you have. So I have two reps on my team that are very tenured. They've been doing this for a long time. One of them has been selling for 30 years. He's an older guy and he's an absolute close. Both of those individuals are strong closers, but he's also used to selling really, really large deals, like multi seven figure deals. And we're not necessarily selling that to that level, right? Our, our deals are smaller and more transactional in nature. And so that coaching component still matters, even when you're dealing with, you know, long tenured reps. Yeah, I'd be very cautious about people who don't believe they can get better or adapt or take on new things. Um, so coachability to one of your core values you look for, I think is so important. Michelle, as you look out in the next, uh, towards the end of this year and into next year, what are the big things that you're thinking about with the sales team and, and your go-to-market strategy? Brand awareness, that's our number one priority. So getting the name out, you know, making sure that people understand who Six Clicks is and what our value proposition is, that's uh, core to our success. And it's it's happening. So we're seeing a lot of a lot of direct correlation in terms of inbound leads, uh, referrals from countries that we not even have a presence in. So that's exciting. We're also getting accolades and awards coming in unsolicited. And we're getting awareness across the analyst community. So we've been defined now as a disruptor by the analysts. And we're starting to get quite a bit of press coverage. So um, pretty exciting to see all of the hard work and organic ground ground level work that we've been putting in uh, pay off. 
Well, I know there's going to be quite a few companies in our space that wish they had that uh, level of exposure and inbound that you were talking about. It's so hard out there right now to get that uh, get more than your fair share. Yeah, we're we're quite blessed. Um, but you know, sales reps are always going to want more leads, so <laughs> it's a never-ending feed fest. <laughs> well, I'm curious though. You're a Australia headquartered company, and I'm wondering if that. Any any effect that has, good or bad, on on how you expand throughout the rest of the world? Not necessarily. I think the the one area that we've had to really focus on is adjusting our contract language so that it's more relevant to the the local jurisdiction. I mean, we have legal entities in each of the three primary regions we operate in. Although we have data centers worldwide in the three where we have sales teams, but also uh, India and Dubai. So. You know, our SaaS platform is available on Microsoft Azure, and you've got presence around the world. But I think having the the organization with a legal entity in the three primary regions and the contract language reflecting those local vernaculars <laughs> and jurisdictional regions matters. So, I've enjoyed our conversation, Michelle. If someone wants to get in touch with you to talk about uh, what you're doing or potential employment, what's the best way to, to get in touch with you? No, oh, thanks for asking, Andrew. Um, so probably email is the best. I'm Michelle at sixclicks.com. That's the number six, C-L-I-C-K-S.com. Well, I'd encourage everyone to go do that. And I wish uh, you and the team great success for the rest of 22 and into 23. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode and that interview as much as I did. Um, Michelle's obviously got some really good experiences and very thoughtful about how she's building the sales team at Six Clicks right now. I had three takeaways. They might be different to yours, but here are mine. First one is our discussion around the channel and how important it is not just to build the relationship with the channel partner itself, but also down at the rep by rep level. As I said in the interview, I, I don't know what the right percentage is, but uh, getting a relationship in the first place is tough, but it's only really a part of the battle. To really get some traction going, you have to go down to the individual account managers and figure out how you can build trust and relationships in a common way of working with them. That's where the real rubber meets the road when it comes to building a market, building your business through the channel. The second takeaway I had was the discussion on how Michelle looks at assessments as part of the hiring process. It really seemed to me that she's done her research, got some experiences to fall back on, and put a lot of trust in the assessment that she uses. And it's fantastic to see someone do that, commit to it, learn from it, and then also use it as part of the coaching process in the first few months of someone's inside the sales team. And my third takeaway was the idea of being at the coal face. As she said, pick and shovel time when it comes to getting your fair share of attention, getting your, your, your voice, your brand in the market, and all the different things and ways you have to go about doing that. And as she said, you know, there, there's no silver bullet there. It's a lot of hard work as people doing it again and again but figuring out ways to go and get to the key stakeholders in the market. For her, it's not just the enterprise and mid-market customers, but also the advisory partners and making sure that you're servicing them and getting the name out and getting some mind share with them. So those are my three takeaways. You may have different ones, but I uh, hope you enjoyed the discussion and see you next time.
It would mean a lot to me and to the continued growth of the show if you'd help get the word out. So how do you do that easily? There are two ways. Firstly, just simply send a link to a friend. Send a link to the show, to this episode. Um, you can email it, text it, Slack it, whatever works for you and is easy for you. The second way is to leave a super quick rating. And sometimes that can seem complicated, so I've made it as easy for you as I can. You simply have to go to ratethispodcast.com slash cyber. That's ratethispodcast.com slash cyber and explains exactly how to do it. Either of these ways will take you less than 30 seconds to do, and it will mean the world to me. So thank you.